And now, to begin the science show, one of my favourite botanists, Dame Ottiline Lisa, Regis Professor of Botany at Cambridge. But she's with us to explain the huge importance of the breakthrough just days ago in Britain's scientific relationship to Europe. So the way that European science funding works is there are these big programmes, very impressive programmes that run in cycles, seven-year cycles, called the Horizon programmes. And the current one is called Horizon Europe. And the UK membership of Horizon Europe was actually formally part of the Brexit agreement. So we were supposed to join, but our ability to join has been delayed now for years over a series of issues. We were unable to join until various other elements of the trade and cooperation agreement had been sorted out properly, particularly the Northern Ireland protocol. And now, since we have passed through that hurdle, there are now ongoing discussions about how much it should cost us to join, given that we've missed such a big chunk whilst waiting for these other elements to be sorted out. So it's been a a very long period of uncertainty. I should say that throughout that entire time, the UK scientists have been able to apply and participate in the normal way in all of the programmes, but the way the funding has then arrived in their bank accounts has been through a government guarantee that's flowed through UKRI. So the money doesn't come from Europe, it comes from the UK government. Comes from you? From government via me, yes. So that needs to be fixed. Yes, so exactly. So everybody would much prefer for us to simply to be a properly associated member and for it all to be working smoothly and cleanly. But we need to get to the end of this negotiation about how much money that should cost at this point in the proceedings. What will it yield? Just more contact, people working together in science as they always have done. It's hugely important thing to be part of this program, properly part of this program, able to engage in this pan-European collaboration and for UK scientists to be able to be part of this, it's the biggest, globally, the biggest research and innovation program that there is and being fully part of it is clearly beneficial for everybody, for the program, for scientists in Europe, for scientists in the UK, and therefore for the outcomes, which are obviously globally significant. As I read the British press, there's more and more evidence that Brexit has been a disaster. And this may be another example of ways in which there's been an impediment on science just when it needed to be most active. Or do you think that's too strong a statement? I think the delay has caused an awful lot of uncertainty and anxiety for researchers both in the UK and on continental Europe, and that has not been helpful. Nonetheless, because of the government guarantee, researchers have been participating in the programmes, collaborations have formed, they're going forward. And, And this is something I find overall is researchers are incredibly motivated by their work, by wanting to make progress, by wanting to get ahead as quickly as possible. That's the whole point. And of course, being part of the European programme would make it easier for everybody. But at the same time, we will find a way. Uh, We always have and we always will. Um, Researchers in the UK collaborate brilliantly with researchers in Australia, in the US, in Japan, all over the world without those kinds of programmes. So whilst it would be so much better to be fully part of that programme, we will find a way. Talking about botany, 
finding a way actually with investment means something that costs you today will be of immense benefit, not just financially, but in terms of global well-being in the future. And there are various examples of that. I think quite often of the work in Canberra on various forms of photosynthesis, and there are several, which when adapted for crop plants will produce yields four times what you get now. In other words, the starving will be fed and things will be more efficient. Do you think the public or do you think politicians understand the nature of what is investment rather than simply paying money because you deserve more? So um, I think this is a really important point. I think our lives, our livelihoods are critically dependent on the products of research and innovation. All kinds of things that we take for granted now are the consequence of research and innovation X years ago. That X years is a critical issue because politically an investment that won't yield its dividends until three or four governments later is always a little bit more difficult to make. And at the same time, it's also a real choice. It's the same money, public money, taxpayers' money, that you're choosing to invest in those long-term things or to spend now on the healthcare system or the police or the roads or whatever it is. And that's an immediate benefit to people now. So it's one huge kind of marshmallow test, you know, this marshmallow test. (laughs) Can you resist the marshmallow for maybe an extra hour or two and you get double the number later on? Absolutely. (laughs) So balancing investment for the immediate benefit now versus investment for the long term, I think, is critical. And one of the things that I think has, if anything, could ever be said to be a positive coming out of the COVID pandemic is that really strong indicator of how that long-term investment in research and innovation has paid off in a big way. So in the UK, for example, we're um, very proud of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was one of the very early vaccines to be rolled out. And still actually more flexible because it is more thermostable than the RNA vaccines, which were in the end more effective. Nonetheless, that vaccine is a result of investments over many years. And actually, it's kind of starting with what you would consider to be a very kind of high risk, crazy idea that nobody would have imagined would work. And that's also true of those RNA vaccines, uh, well, in, in different contexts. So you can see how that long term investment, which at the time was made thinking that it might pay dividends X, Y years in the future, was there, ready to go, just when the world really needed it. And there are a number of of examples coming out of COVID that that are similar. That, I think, I hope, stays in the public and also political memory long enough to embed the notion that investment in research and innovation really is an investment in all of our futures – At a time when we know there are huge challenges globally that need addressing climate change and food security, as you've already described, all of those health issues. And also at a time when economies worldwide need to be radically reconfigured to deal, for example, with net zero, to drive economic growth through a circular economy that is not consumptive, but rather is stable and sustainable. So all of this means investing in research and innovation is really 
investing in our futures and we need to be able to keep our eyes on the horizon to keep that progress going. And of course the public, if only you asked, would be behind you. Do you remember that occasion when the leader of the AstraZeneca work in Oxford was in the front row at Wimbledon Central Court? when there was a standing ovation of two and a half thousand spectators? Absolutely. It was really an iconic moment. A lot of us in research and innovation really were deeply moved by that experience, by having a leading scientist who'd really worked flat out through the pandemic with her team to deliver that vaccine, receiving in such a kind of public venue the kind of recognition that we could happen for a botanist too, come on. Oh, it, it, you know, there have been uh, botanists who I mean, arguably have had more significant impact in terms of, of saving lives. Norman Borlaug, um, who is the father of the Green Revolution, millions of lives saved through the, the kind of work that he did. So um, absolutely, across the domains of, of research and innovation, you can point to huge impacts that have come out. Do you see students still at all? I have one PhD student left. So when I took up this role at UKRI, I had was running a research group with PhD students and so on, and that's gradually dwindled. But her PhD is about how buds decide whether to grow or not, essentially. So it's been an interesting year for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Dame Ottoline Lisa in her home in Cambridge. And she's not only the Regis Professor, but also the Chief Executive of UKRI, that's UK Research and Innovation, looking after the funding that helped fill the gap, threatening to leave British scientists stranded after Brexit. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.